Our guest today is Thomas Garakowski. He's a Royal Society University Research Fellow based in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Bristol. His lab applies tools from synthetic biology for the rational engineering of biological systems to both provide insights into how biology controls the complex processes sustaining life and to tackle problems spanning the sustainable production of materials to novel therapeutics. In very simple terms, what is bioprogramming and how can we program cells? It's a really good question. Um, it's what we get asked <laughs> a lot, obviously. Um, so I guess when people talk about bioprogramming uh, today, uh, what they're really meaning is, is looking at a cell, not just as a kind of a self-contained thing, but actually trying to think about it in terms of potentially a, a computer that could be kind of altered in some way. Um, and so when we think about computers, we we'll often think about you know, electronic computers, but actually historically, if you look back in, in history, computers can take all sorts of different forms. So you have things like an abacus could be thought of as a kind of a mechanical human computer. Um, and even to, I think, to the 1980s, the, there, were, there were Russian groups that were using water-based computers for doing different sorts of computations. Um, and so it's, it's not a stretch of the imagination that you could imagine that Biology has to process information. Cells have to make sense of the world they're in. And so actually they can also be thought of a little bit like computers that work obviously differently to an electronic one, but, but, but they have certain characteristics that are similar nevertheless. Now, one of the, I guess, the difficult things in thinking about a cell as a computer is the fact that it doesn't have kind of a single what I would call signal that it uses to, to kind of encode information. There's all sorts of different signals in cells. You have, I don't know, for example, concentrations of maybe proteins or expression rates of certain genes. And so one of the challenges in bioprogramming, I would say, is figuring out how we connect some of our ideas that we have from, say, computer science to how it fits with the actual um, biology that's going on within a cell so that we can come up with programs which make sense to the cell in order to kind of re, um, repurpose some of these internal processes that they have to carry out information processing in a different way or to, to behave in a different way, respond in a different way. Uh, and one of the ways that my group does that is by creating what we call genetic circuits. And so these are basically just pieces of DNA um, which encode specific sets of genes which interact with some of the uh, gene expression machinery in a cell to kind of alter some of the kind of the core behaviors and characteristics and ultimately um, kind of rewire some of those kind of inherent capabilities the cells have to create our own functions that we, we want them to actually perform. Um, and so that's, that's our take on it, but there are also other groups looking at other ways as well that you could potentially program cells using different forms of kind of materials, for example, proteins or, or other, other, um, other approaches. Well, since cells already have their own kind of natural genetic circuits, does adding synthetic circuits on top of that not place a burden on the cell? And if so, how might this constrain your design? Exactly, yeah. So it, it, clearly the, the cell is there, it has, has all these internal processes to basically allow it to survive and self-replicate. And so if, you, if we suddenly introduce something new, 
obviously that takes away some of the energy that the cell would have in order to do those kind of core, we call endogenous type processes that it, that it requires. And so it's what you've highlighted is absolutely crucial when we're designing these sorts of circuits is that we, we take into consideration what we would call the burden that we're placing on, on the host in some sense. Um, and what, what we found over the past, I guess, of a uh, decade is that cells have kind of a, a capacity to take on new things. So there's, it's not that we're immediately causing a massive burden on the cell by introducing maybe a, a small genetic circuit. But as these genetic circuits get bigger and they start to basically pull more and more of kind of the, the resources that the cell needs itself away from those kind of native processes, it can actually completely disrupt how the cell works. And the cells can basically stop becoming viable, they stop growing. Um, and that doesn't just have an effect on the cell's native processes, it also impacts upon the function of the circuits we're introducing. So we need to work more and more in harmony with what the cell can provide us in terms of the capacity to do other things. And we have to be careful not to overload that when we're actually introducing some of these new functionalities that we, that we want them to perform. Um, and I guess, yeah, sort of to elaborate a little bit on that, one of the interesting areas that I'm getting quite excited about is the fact that because we can now potentially actually engineer the genomes of these organisms, we can actually change the amount of capacity the cells have to run genetic circuits. So we can remove, for example, certain maybe functionalities from a, a native cell, which it doesn't need in a certain environment. So in the lab, for example, if we're growing a bacteria in a shake flask uh, in some liquid media, it might not need the capability to say swim around. It can, it's going to get naturally moved around and it's got nutrients. And so actually the need to produce say flagella, which are these appendages which allow the, the bacteria to move around, isn't necessary. So we can free up some capacity by removing some of those elements, which we can then use as, a, as a, a means to introduce other functionalities which might be more useful for, for what we what we have in mind. Wow I've never thought about it in that way kind of taking functions away from the cell and supplementing it with the environment. It's almost, it's almost like a pick and mix if you go into a sweet shop you can pick mm. and mix the things that you think uh, are actually important. Now there are obviously some things that you can't remove <laughs> which the cells need and, yeah. and one of the really interesting things is that when we start making these modifications, we sometimes find there are kind of unexpected consequences of removing one thing that impacts something else that we didn't really appreciate. And so you actually learn a little bit about the biology as well of the cell in, in some sense, and these interactions that, that we, we weren't aware of beforehand by doing some of these, um, these modifications. Mm -hmm. I find that really interesting, just how interconnected all the pathways in a cell are, even if, it's not like predictable. Mm, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So are most genetic circuits designed to be very simple then if complex ones introduce such a problem? So to date, a lot of the ones that I would say that function correctly in cells generally are quite simple or they, they, they'll use a limited set of resources. But um, there have been efforts to kind of increase the complexity of some of these circuits. So um, obviously, if we want to um, provide the cell with a means to maybe uh, make a, a very complex decision, then we need to be able to scale up these circuits. And so one of the ways that people have, have attempted to do that is by 
actually making use of some of the tools that we use in computer science for automatically generating effectively microchips that have certain functions. So rather than the designer having to worry about which genes connect to which and all of those elements, we can actually use some software on a computer to automatically generate the, the DNA design that we want to use. Now, obviously, as, as those things get bigger, like you said, it causes a burden. And so and the sort of a complementary approach that's being used with those kind of automated um, design methodologies is to actually look at ways of reducing the amount that we need to express some of these kind of synthetic or introduced components. And one of the ways we can do that is actually by moving the elements that we introduce from pieces of DNA, which are separate to the genome of the cell and often have many, many copies within a single cell to actually introducing them in just a single copy within the genome itself. And that reduces significantly the uh, amount of like, burden that we're placing on the cell and allows us to then scale up some of the complexity. And it's, it's been sort of shown more recently that that can really help to enable us to implement more, more complex functionalities that we're, that we're interested in. Um, another approach which I also think is really interesting is there, like I said, there are lots of these different signals in cells and there's loads of different biochemistry we could potentially exploit to carry out different forms of logic or computation or information processing. And so people have also started to explore using some of these different biomolecules. So proteins are the one that people often turn to. They're seen as these kind of like molecular machines of the cell, but actually RNA, which is much less energetically energetic to produce, also can have a lot of really interesting functions for, for, for generating circuits. And, and they can be used like using up less burden or placing less burden on the cell. So um, people have been also exploring ways of encoding their circuits using these different forms of biochemistry to also reduce the burden and therefore allow them to increase the complexity of some of the designs that they're interested in. Okay, so the idea is that the like the proteins encoded for by the genetic circuit, the transcription of them is knocked down so that the burden is decreased. Exactly, yeah. So you so you don't okay. need to have as much of, of them for the for the system to still function correctly. And that's often how right. nature nature often doesn't have huge numbers of copies of a single gene. It often will only have a single copy of that, and it's it's very carefully regulated to, to ensure it doesn't over overburden the, the actual native processes themselves mm -hmm. right and kind of linking with that i guess there's a lot of redundancy in the genome and in nature and like in biology natural genetic circuits are really not always very efficient or they're regulated in very complex ways so how does kind of aiming for a genetic circuit to be very simple limit the potential to program biology? Well, I think it's a it's a first step, I would say, with all these things. So we mm -hmm. we have to be, I think, pragmatic to kind of learn the rules of the game in a way. Like so, so having simple systems obviously allows us to more clearly understand when problems arise, why they're arising, and, and things like that. But you're right in that actually, if you look at biological circuits, they're often incredibly um, interwoven and actually what we, what we would term complex. There's lots of potentially feedback loops within them that are really difficult to actually understand. And um, all of these additional elements 
they add extra complexity, but often they're there to also introduce additional robustness to the functions that are actually going on. And um, kind of at the moment, we're in a transition period, I think, where we, we've demonstrated now that actually we can use our understanding of some of the biochemistry to, in a simple way, implement functions in a predictable manner, which is a really good first step for actually a lot of applications. A lot of the, the things you're seeing, starting to see come out of synthetic biology as a field are still using these very simple circuits effectively. But what's happening now is that people are starting to understand, well, actually, we need to probably introduce some complexity within these simple circuits to improve their robustness. So that, for example, if we want to deploy this engineered organism within a, a human as a, as a therapeutic, it needs to be robust to differences in different patients or the different environments that that cell is going to have to kind of move through in the body. And so um, there's, there's a lot of effort in introducing what's often called kind of control engineering type approaches, which have these features of feedback, regulation, and, and other kind of more complex architectures that allow us to ensure that these systems work robustly. Um, and if you look historically at other engineering fields, similar progressions have happened. So for example, in aerospace, it wasn't really until a lot of the control engineering principles like feedback were introduced before flights became very, very safe to go on. So uh, there's going to be probably a similar transition in bioengineering where we start simply, but then we, we learn how to increase the complexity in the right way to actually ensure those simple functions work in a really reliable manner. Um, and we're, we're at that transition point now, I would say. We're, we're still on the journey. Um, so it's a really exciting time to, to be in the field, I think. Yeah, for sure. How does con control engineering and control theory actually, um, like practically, how does that come into the design of genetic circuits? So at the moment, it's been quite limited. Like there have been kind of simple examples of how feedback can be implemented. But the real beauty about control engineering is that it's, it's a theory, there's, there's a lot of theory behind it, whereby if you can demonstrate that you've got the right, say, biomolecular parts to implement certain types of feedback, you can suddenly introduce them into almost any circuit that you want and make them more robust. So there's, you, you can kind of build on a lot of the, the mathematical theory and just apply it then very broadly across many different kind of uh, genetic circuits or other types of biological circuit that you actually implement. And one of the challenges that has kind of held that back in some way today has been figuring out, like I said, what are the biological parts or signals that we should be using to implement those feedback loops? Because in biology, you see them implemented in lots of different ways. And it's, it's, it might be the case, actually, you don't just use one method. You might have to use a range of different methods mm -hmm. depending on the specific function you want to implement or um, whether it needs to occur really quickly or actually if it can be slower and that doesn't matter. So there's all these factors that we're, we're still figuring out how they work. But once, we've, once we have enough of these parts, we can then potentially actually take existing theory, which, which holds across not just biology, but holds across all forms of engineering. It's a, it's a general theory which can then be introduced and, um, and give us some of these kind of robustness properties that we really want in the sorts of biology we engineer. We don't want our systems to be fragile and to break. We want them to always work how we want them to work yeah. so that 
um, so that people can trust that then they're, they're not going to do something unexpected when they're actually put into the environment or actually used in the lab. I think it's incredible how synthetic biology research and research into fundamental biology like feedback to each other mm -hmm. in the way that you can use biology to design genetic circuits and program them and that that in turn also tells you about how they work. Definitely. I think that's that's one of the so I, I'm a I'm a very curiously driven scientist in that I I'm I'm less application focused. I'm not so interested necessarily in sort of an end goal. I'm just interested in the knowledge and the journey of figuring out how the world works and, and things like that. And actually, I think um, kind of comparative biology, which we've done a lot of historically, can get you so far in understanding how biology works in some sense and some of the general principles. But actually to really understand biology as a system, you often have to poke it in different ways and see how it responds. And that requires modifying it in ways that you don't find naturally in nature. And synthetic biology really is, uh, is, a, is a beautiful tool for being able to do that. And as the field has progressed, the, the amount of tools that are now available to us to kind of really precisely modify rates of reactions or rates of transcription or the composition of a, say, a cell membrane, is all, all of these things now are available to not just bioengineers, but also biologists to really pull apart and try to understand what are the, the key characteristics of life in some sense and what, what makes all of these biological processes tick and actually function in such a, a kind of an amazing way that we see, we see in the natural world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I guess that kind of parallels with very traditional classical biological approaches, like things like classical genetic screens even that is kind of like poking the system and seeing how it responds. Definitely, definitely. I think the, the, the thing that, that probably synthetic biology brings to the table is just more precision in, in those mm -hmm. sorts of approaches. But you're exactly right that, that that's been done for a, a long, long time. Um, and I guess where a, a transition might happen is when we start potentially synthesizing uh, life in theory from scratch. So uh, could, could we come up with completely new forms of, of life that are maybe still based on certain biological processes, but used in a way that you never see in nature? Then it becomes interesting to know, well, is that exploring a part of biology which evolution historically may have explored, but then it's not, not necessarily was useful, so it moved elsewhere? Or are these really new areas that have never been seen in the world before? So there's um, it's, a, it's a really interesting interaction you have between the natural biology, evolution, and the kind of engineered and synthetic approaches as well, and what that tells us about the world we live in, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Touching on this idea of evolution, um, I know you've done some work relating to um, taking kind of an evolutionary approach to bioprogramming cells. Um, is the role of evolution right now, is it considered in the design of genetic circuits, given that it has the potential to impact their, its function so significantly? Yeah, so I guess my interest in sort of evolution and genetic circuits was um, born out of the fact that we often don't, when we're designing these circuits, think about evolution. Um, and I think part of that stems from the fact that 
when we're programming a computer, you generally don't worry that your computer is going to grow an extra arm or I don't know, do something different than it was actually intended to, because a lot of the devices we tend to engineer are quite static in their structure and function in some sense. Um, but with biology, it's always evolving. Like you, you can never remove that. It's kind of, I would say that's probably one of the, in my view, defining characteristic of what makes life life is the fact that it can evolve. And um, yeah, I got, I got really interested in what kinds of effects that would have in terms of when you're designing a circuit, if you thought about evolution, would it change some of the decisions that you make? Now, there are people that have been thinking about some of these things for a while. Um, and a lot of that has stemmed from biotechnology, where if you're growing, for example, a microbe in a, I don't know, a massive fermenter, evolution is actually taking place as that process uh, progresses because there, there are so many cell divisions and although the mutation rates might be very slow or very small sorry um, there, there's enough uh, there's enough time and, and enough things going on and, and replications of those cells that evolution can actually play a significant role in affecting say the yield that a bioprocess might actually produce and so if the, the designers of a strain that maybe produces I don't know, insulin don't think about that, then it means that their processes become very unreliable or because the cells may not want to produce the thing that you want them to actually produce. And so that there's been some thoughts around the burden that we spoke about earlier, reducing that reduces the kind of selective pressure for removing certain things. But there are other, I think, more interesting ways that evolution can be incorporated into the design of these systems, where rather than just trying to um, reduce its effect, so kind of, like I said, by reducing the burden, reducing the selective pressures, perhaps we can actually develop systems that actually harness evolution to create more adaptive systems that are able to change to changing conditions that, they're, that, they're, uh, that they have to um, to live within. And so obviously recently um, with Francis Arnold being awarded the Nobel Prize for directed evolution, that's a very in the lab approach to looking at evolution, but could we de design a cell that when we put it into the environment, it can evolve several different functions itself, but that we've somehow engineered the types of functions that we're interested in dependent on the, the things that it might uncover. So really having in, evolution as a central part of the actual design process itself um, and this is something that we're still working on and, and hasn't really been explored very extensively I would say in terms of um, uh, the literature so far there are people looking at different things and we have tools now to kind of manipulate how different pieces of DNA might be mutated so kind of adding certain types of variation to them but as a whole package thinking about evolution in terms of not just mutation but also the selection aspect is going to really open up some really exciting I think philosophical questions about how we design um, which goes way beyond normal engineering practices um, and it is, is a unique feature to kind of living substrates that we're, that we're often working with. Yeah and it's interesting that you mentioned the tools that you can use to kind of direct evolution because I always thought evolution was like a completely random impossible thing to be able to direct and there's so many different processes feeding into it so how like how could you ever possibly think about starting to engineer this and I really like the approach that your like your paper took 
kind of breaking down the different ways that you can get variation and linking them to more like algorithmic ideas. Definitely. I think that's the, that's the key is that biology is very complex, but it can still be broken down and abstracted to a point where we can potentially make predictions. I'm not saying you could predict the exact thing that's going to happen through an evolutionary process, but you might be able to predict the class of cell that comes out the other end and the types of functionality that it might, might end up having. And I think um, it was interesting when, when we wrote that paper, actually, um, it actually gave us a, a new, it gave us a, an appreciation that actually we do have a lot of tools and, and there is a lot of understanding as to how variation gets introduced into genomes. Um, and, but we don't actually often have very good measurements for how these, these processes are taking place. And actually one of the gaps that I think will help us come up with a more predictive theory that allows us to kind of maybe design more with these, with these kind of processes is actually being able to have numbers or, or like rates associated with some of these different types of mechanism that are present within the cell that allow us to then, like I said, make some prediction about the sorts of variation that are actually happening. Because it's, it's although you're completely right, it's kind of sold that evolution is a random process, but clearly it's not completely random because uh, like there are, there are things that you can predict are gonna happen in, in it, with, with evolution. And also evolution often happens much quicker than you might expect. So it's, there are things geared up in, in the genetic systems that, that we're looking at, which allow it to adapt to certain types of change very quickly, more so than just thinking about a random point mutation in a genome. That's not gonna probably give you the the kind of adaptive capabilities that, that biology would need. And so we're still just scratching the surface in terms of how those things work. But by having better kind of measurements of how these, how, how well these things are working, the sorts of uh, changes that are present uh, and trying to bring that together into some kind of coherent theory, I think it's a really valuable effort in integrating evolution into kind of a broader biological design type framework that ultimately we, we want to, to create, I think, as, as synthetic biologists. So do you think that having a way to quantify processes contributing towards evolution is the major limitation on being able to engineer evolution, or is it kind of just everything? <laughs> I think at the moment it's still probably a little bit of everything, if I'm completely honest. I think there are still mechanisms that we're only just learning about. Um, I, I was recently learning about organisms that have these micro and macro nuclei and actually um, when they reproduce they'll actually effectively rebuild their genome from one other genome in a different way so there's all these the variation can happen in all sorts of weird ways in biology that we still are learning about it in some way so I think we still have to to probably um, search and, and, and look more carefully at some of the processes that are present but I do feel that if we really want to make progress, we also need to have measurements and we need to start looking at this in a very quantitative way because ultimately, if we want to be able to design things, we need a, um, we need a, a theory and a framework in which to work. And for that to be created, there has to be a quantitative, there has to be some mathematics behind it, I think. That's my view anyway. Um, and, I, and I think, we have a lot of tools now to make those measurements, but 
there often there hasn't been the incentive historically necessary to make those measurements carefully enough. And I think um, once that data becomes available, it opens up the possibility for us to understand a lot more about these processes than we could previously and to start testing how predictable some of these things are. Like, we, it's really hard to do that without numbers. We can't predict anything if we just don't know how common one type of mutation over another is. It's just impossible. So um, it's probably a bit of everything, but uh, like my lab in particular, we're focused on trying to measure some of these things now. That's the, th that's the point where I see the biggest gains to be made is actually, okay, let's really try and observe how these things are, are happening in, in, in real populations and, and see if we can put some numbers to some of the, the things that are actually going on. Right, so the importance of having numbers assigned to these processes is just to allow comparison? Uh, not just comparison, but also potentially prediction of what a gene, what future genotypes might look like. So um, if we were just thinking about kind of point mutations, you, you can kind of, you could predict kind of future genotypes just by basically applying point mutations to a population. But obviously that's not the only variation that you see. And it's how all these different forms interact, which requires kind of numbers and rates and things that actually allows us to then see what the future genotypes might look like. And, and we're getting better at coming up with predictions of how different sorts of genotypes might function in a cell. So we can start to see how those make a prediction then in terms of, of the new population that we have, what sorts of functions might they actually be exhibiting? Um, and how is, yeah, and how might that then be selected for in terms of the impact it has on growth? Are some of these designs more burdensome? So maybe the cells would then start growing slower. There's all these things we could start doing, but until we know numbers for how those processes are interacting and the, the, the rates that they're occurring at. We can't do that. And that's, that's a real problem in, in some ways. Mm -hmm. Right. Do you think that um, keeping evolution in mind and bioprogramming will be like the next big paradigm shift in synthetic biology? Um, I think, so I think the, the thing you said about uh, scaling up complexity is probably the current one. So people are really trying to push the boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say evolution is part of that already, because if you want to make something very big and complex, then you, you need to ensure it's not being selected against by natural, like by, by the biological system itself. And so you're already, although you may not be thinking about it in evolutionary terms, by just reducing the burden, that, that the reason for doing that often is there's an evolutionary perspective on that kind of change. But I do see that the evolution offers us something more than we have when we're engineering any other form of substrate that we have and potentially would open up new avenues for creating um, other forms of, uh, of um, system that aren't necessarily biological but start to integrate some of these evolutionary principles as well. So there's a, it goes in both ways. Um, but, I, but yeah, I, I, I think there's something unique about biology and evolution. And so if there, there's gonna be some really interesting things coming out of incorporating that, that aspect into the, the design that we're actually um, carrying out. Does the natural evolution of cells currently pose like a big problem to the robustness of genetic circuits? Yeah, no, definitely. So, um, as I said before, like the, a lot of, for example, in, in applications specifically, like if you're trying to 
maybe produce something with cells. So maybe you're trying to alter a, a petrochemical process and, and actually do it with enzymes from I don't know, wastewater or some other waste source. Um, obviously, there you're trying to often maximize a yield of some product that you're producing. And so often any mutation is normally deleterious to the, the, the cell in some way. And so it's very likely that um, if, if the cell can find a way of mutating your uh, biological process, it's likely that that's then going to allow it to grow more quickly. And so you'll end up with a population which isn't producing the thing that you want. So it is super important to um, that, that evolution is considered because it will have, a, will have an effect. Um, and this is only going to become greater the, the more um, ambitious we get with what we want to do with cell because almost inevitably that means more complexity or we want to push the cells right to the limit and optimize some process and all of those things mean that evolution is probably going to want to push back against us in some way because the cells weren't they didn't evolve to do what we wanted them to do um, and so that's often the that's often the, um, the, the challenge right so if we're able to kind of engineer the evolution of a cell we can both kind of have it adapt to the environment better but also make existing genetic circuits more robust exactly yeah potentially that's 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 definitely something that could be done and e even as a as a kind of a, a simple step we could look at trying to create so we could modify for example bacteria that have maybe a lot of native mechanisms for adaptation we could actually engineer those out. We could try to remove those capabilities so that you, you reduce the, the opportunity for mutations and things to actually be introduced. And there's some really beautiful literature out there showing how a lot of these, um, there are these uh, mobile genetic elements that can hop around genomes and they can, they can they allow for diversity in a population in terms of phenotype and genotype, but they also can hop into our circuit and cause it to break. And so, actually making sure the strains you have don't contain those elements can immediately improve the robustness and the longevity of the actual thing that you're building. So there are actually quite simple things you can sometimes do that can have a really big effect on the, the, the value of the, the thing that you've made. Um, and so um, it's, it's super important to consider these things. And it's definitely, I, I, like, I, I think it's the, it's the next thing that we really need to tr try and really start focusing on uh, as a field. So this idea of trying to eliminate natural mechanisms that introduce genetic variation is interesting to me because this usually has the function of like strengthening the population. So how does knocking this out affect the health of the population of cells? So it, it comes down to what, like where this organism has come from and the niche they fill and the, 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 the way that they adapt, exactly like you said, to, to their particular environment. And obviously, if we're using, I don't know, for example, an E. coli to produce some product in a fermenter, that's clearly not an environment that that E. coli has evolved to live within. And so actually, it may not need the capability to do a lot of things. It may not need the, the capability to adapt because actually, we're controlling the environment very, very carefully in, in some ways. And so actually, you're right, it may be, the, the cell may be way less robust if you put it into a field or put or ingested it or whatever. It may not be able to outcompete kind of other organisms in that in that niche, but that may not matter if the actual use for that 
cell is to produce something in a very specific environment that we're carefully controlling. Um, so it, it's, it's important to consider the, the, the entire system, not just the cell in isolation. And robustness means different things depending on the kind of context that you put the cell in. Um, and so, so that's something that you have to be aware of whenever we're designing these systems or if it's suitable to take out some of these processes or whether we can't because it needs to, like you said, it needs to have, maybe have these to, to afford it some ability to adapt. Um, and these are all decisions that we realistically, I think we should be, we should have a kind of a, a, a book which helps us understand, okay, a checklist. Yes, have we thought about this? Have we thought about this? These are all things that we should be thinking about. But today it's been very piecemeal and not, not particularly very coherent in terms of how you go about thinking about all of these different processes in a, in a systematic way. Right. So as we've kind of discussed today, evolution and biology is very complex and intelligent. And we've likened biology to a computer in the way that it can be programmed. But is there a way that computers can also learn from biology and its complexity? Um, definitely. I think we, we already have in many ways, I would say. So um, a lot of kind of the, the original work, for example, that was done on um, kind of neural networks, which now are used for a lot of different um, what we'd call kind of semi-intelligent type tasks like image classification or language processing. A lot of the original, I would say, sparks that kind of got people to think about different ways of processing this information came from biology. There it might be, for example, neuroscience, but there are other areas of biology that have been really instrumental in, in kind of helping, for example, in computer science, has come up with new algorithms or, or better ways of um, optimizing solutions or um, or um, carrying out certain types of, of computation. Uh, and so I think, yeah, there, there definitely is a, a huge amount of um, cross-fertilization, I think, between the fields. I don't think it's always recognized. So it's maybe recognized at quite a superficial level. So like people talk about neural networks, and oh yeah, it's like the brain, but there are often some very sort of nuanced things within, for example, neural networks on a computer, which actually take inspiration from Kind of biochemical processes in cells and a lot of the say for example the learning processes that people are now trying to implement in neural networks they have certain analogies with things that happen actually in our brain and like obviously with neurons you've got all this complexity not just within one neuron but with all the diversity of types of neuron that you have and they obviously in biology it's found a way of using that to to create something that's intelligent and in, in computing, we're still figuring out which of those things are necessary or, or work well in the setting, obviously it's the electronic setting that we're actually using these things in. So I think there is clearly a lot of cross-fertilization between the fields. And I think it's a, the more we learn about biology, I suspect the more um, computer science can potentially take inspiration from that. But also computer science can sometimes give us an abstraction. So they often it has to simplify things to a point where actually it helps us then understand the biology better. Because if you look at the biological system, you might think this is too complicated, no one will ever understand this. But actually certain abstractions can be really valuable in kind of teasing apart the principles about how some of these biological processes are working as well. So it's not a, a one-way street, it goes in both directions, the, um, 
the, the kind of the, the inspiration and the understanding in, in a way. Um, and yeah, it's, it, I think it's a re really exciting area um, to be in some of the, some of the um, uh, those sorts of those sorts of areas. Yeah, for sure. Coming from like a computer science background yourself, what actually sparked you or your interest in flipping over to synthetic biology or bioprogramming? Yeah. So um, I was so I have a kind of a strange um, career path in that I I did I was a computer scientist by training. So I um, I, I studied a master's in computer science, and then I worked for a number of years in um, kind of consultancy, looking at kind of data analytics type things. And then actually I decided to, to come back to academia and study a PhD in complex systems. So one of the things I've noticed when I've been working is that actually a lot of the challenges that businesses face was the fact that they're often very interconnected processes, they're really difficult to understand, things would break in weird ways, which were hard to predict. And so my kind of PhD really focused on trying to use uh, networks to try and understand some of these complex interactions and, and processes that were going on in these complex systems and I was really fortunate during my PhD I had two supervisors so one of them was a, a control engineer and the other was a plant biologist and it really gave me um, it was a really interesting time for me because it allowed me to kind of bridge between those kind of more theoretical and biological areas and actually, at the time, synthetic biology was also starting to become established. And it was kind of the perfect niche in a way for kind of bringing together some of those ideas. Um, and I remember that, that there, there was a, um, uh, a call for uh, an iGEM team within the University of Bristol, where I was studying for my PhD. And I didn't know what iGEM was or anything, but I, I read up about it. And it's, it's this international kind of genetic engineered machines competition. I thought, well, that sounds kind of kind of cool and the more I read up about it the more I kind of I had a real affinity with this idea of trying to look at biology in a different way which kind of really um, resonated with the kind of computer science background I came from so this idea of maybe trying to think could we potentially think about this in terms of parts or systems or devices and and that I thought was was really really interesting and so after my PhD, I was, I just made the decision. I really, this was a field I wanted to get involved with. I thought it was really interesting. There was some really cool stuff going on. And so, um, yeah, I ended, I ended up um, basically trying to learn a lot of the, the laboratory stuff. So I, I kind of recognized that you couldn't just do synthetic biology, I don't think, at that time anyway, on a computer or in terms of like looking at it theoretically you had to have a practical component and I just didn't have that in my um, repertoire or my toolbox and so I spent kind of the next few years as, as a postdoc trying to learn some of those experimental skills to so actually do experiments um, and then I was really fortunate enough to, to move to the, the US and work in Chris Voigt's group who's kind of one of the pioneers of kind of genetic circuit design and and it was a really um, vibrant environment to be in, in terms of people are looking at these things in all sorts of different ways. Um, and, and ever since then, I've just, I've just wanted to, to kind of to carry things on. And I just feel very fortunate that I can, I have the opportunity to do more theoretical work, but also then test it in the lab. And synthetic biology is really allowing that now. You, you don't have to have several PhDs in biochemistry or molecular biology to do the experiments. There's a lot of these tools are becoming way, way more accessible. 
and that's allowing us to to do things that we couldn't couldn't do before so it's um i think it's a super exciting area to be in and for me it just resonates with how, how i like to look at problems in terms of breaking them down abstraction and um and it helps me also understand a little bit more about the world in a, a way that makes sense to me so that's kind of the reason that i've kind of moved into, into that area right did you find the learning curve going from much more theoretical to more kind of experimental and practical work to be very steep or was it quite an easy transition um i'd never say a transition is easy it was, uh, <laughs> it, was it was interesting at times i would say so um i guess i was quite naive uh, at times like i uh, like i said i hadn't i hadn't ever worked in a lab before and I was like no I want I want to do this and I hadn't quite appreciated the difference in time scales of things sometimes like, <laughs> yeah cells have to grow or like uh, I don't know there's experiments take days like on on my computer I can sometimes run something it's done within like less than a second but with a, with a living cell that's never gonna happen so it, it it wasn't I wouldn't say it was easy but I think what what really um, kept me going was the fact that I really find it fascinating the kind of the just the number of weird and wonderful ways that biology solves different sorts of problems or, or the processes that it comes up with and you just think why would it do it like that but then there's a reason for it somehow and it's just super crazy and actually it's those kind of weird things that get me really excited and so it allowed me to keep persisting at doing the experimental work and learning the necessary skills and now I have a real appreciation I think for both um, so it wasn't easy by any by any means but uh, it, it clearly was the right thing for me to do because I enjoyed the transition I enjoyed the hard work in a way in terms of learning the, the new skills so mm -hmm. yeah and now it's common for people from all kinds of disciplines to enter synthetic biology just because there's so many like it's such an interdisciplinary field. Definitely, yeah. That's, that's one of the reasons I, I think it's a, a brilliant uh, area to work in is that you really get, you get exposure to very different perspectives and, and people see it like synthetic biology doesn't really have, in my view, a definition. Like there, there, people view it in very different ways. And I, some people say that's like a, a limitation of the field because if you can't define it, what is it? But actually, I think having a single definition is sometimes it, it it loses something about what synthetic biology is. And I think the point that we can't really, I don't think clearly define it, is actually a really interesting one that makes it an interesting thing to work in because people have different perspectives and they, they come at it in very, very different ways, from like origins of life to kind of metabolic engineering. It's all these different, very, very different ways of, of looking at kind of ways of using biology in new and interesting ways. And, um, and I'd, I'd hate that to be lost in a way. That's one of the reasons I, I, I really enjoy working in the field. Yeah, definitely. Do you have any advice for aspiring synthetic biologists of, of any background? Um, advice. So in, in terms of if they want to get involved in synthetic biology, I would say um, be curious. So I think it's really important. Some of the, the biggest, uh, I think, discoveries that have actually become really important in the field often were someone following their own in just random interests in a certain process or a certain molecular mechanism uh, and that ends up being really useful for for lots of different different things and i think in synthetic biology that's even more important because 
Um, there's a huge amount of biology out there that we could potentially look at, and you have to kind of find the bit that you're actually interested in uh, that you, you want to like kind of really get stuck into. Um, the other thing I would say is quite, in terms of advice, I'd say it's always really valuable to have a, a um, kind of a mixed background if possible in terms of be familiar or be able to work with kind of the more quantitative kind of mathematical side of things as well as the experimental things. You can focus on just one, but I think a lot of the value comes from being able to integrate those things because it allows you to do things like predictive design, which are very difficult to do if you just focus on mechanisms rather than looking at kind of um, systems as a whole. Um, but yeah, they, I think those are probably the things. I think it's, yeah, you find good people to work with as well. I think that's the other thing that everyone will always say is um, that there are some amazing researchers out there. Uh, and if you find one that's, that, that kind of really connects with you, like their lab has the right culture that you really fit with and they're studying the right sorts of things. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing the sorts of stuff that you can get up to now, which is great. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was lovely to speak to you. Thank you very much.